You're about to listen to a true story told live because this is True Stories Live. Brought to you by LJ Hope Productions, Norwich Arts Centre and me, Molly Naylor. Please, welcome to the stage, our first speaker of the second half. It is the incredible, my friend, Emma Collette. So, um, my gap year changed my life. I actually didn't know what a gap year was. I was the first person in my family to go to university, and I'd read about gap years, and they sounded quite cool, so I thought I'd have one except I had no money and really didn't know about how you organised one. So I spent my gap year in the small village in Suffolk where I grew up. (laughs) Um, Most of my friends went straight to university, so my amazing gap year ended up being not much fun and I had no friends to knock about with because they'd all gone to university. The next revelation was that my parents made it quite clear I wasn't going to live at home for nothing, so I had to um, find some work. So I took a cleaning job with a local Spanish family who were racehorse owners, and I did a lot of babysitting for um, a family who had three girls who were six, seven, and nine. So a few weeks into my pathetic gap year, (laughs) um, their dad killed himself. Um... So I knew that I'd go for a laugh to a kind of like, oh, that's a bit tricky. Um, so I, can't, I thought about how I could describe it, but actually you can't really describe the kind of chaos that that, that just causes. So naive 18-year-old me ended up having to look after, help look after them for the next, for the next year. Two days after he died, it, um, the seven-year-old became eight, and it was decided that the birthday party would go ahead. Um, I was given the job of doing the meet and greet at the front door um, as a succession of parents came and literally chucked their kids through the door as quickly as they could, avoiding eye contact, muttering very inaudible what I assume were probably death-related platitudes and cleared off as quickly as they could. So we did the birthday party in the room where the new carpet had been laid the day that he died. We danced, we did musical statues, and for an hour and a half there was a normality if you ignored all of the adults crying in the kitchen. So during that year, I learned a lot of really, really useful things. Um, I learned about just kind of how powerful stigma is. We had to deal with media intrusion, gossip, it was a small village, awkwardness, you know, people crossing the road. I learned how to remove nits from children's hair. Um, I learned how to deal with pushy neighbours when mum didn't want any company. And I learned to, actually it really didn't matter whether children ate carrots when the fact they were eating at all, especially anything I'd made, was a bit of a triumph. And I learned how to talk about death and dying. So um, the following summer, um, the girls and their mum moved 400 miles away to be closer to family did a final clean of the house, handed the keys back to the estate agent, and I went off to university to do my teacher training. But my heart wasn't really in it. I didn't know that jobs like mental health nurse existed, but I knew that I wanted to do something that might make a difference, might stop people killing themselves, or might help understand why they did. So I dropped out of university, worked for a while as a care assistant with people with dementia, 
and then I came to Norwich in 1996 to start my mental health nurse training. A couple of days before I left, just to prove that, you know, my heart was definitely still in Suffolk. I had an Ipswich Town tattoo done on my shoulder. <laughs> the best advice I could give you, if you're going to have something that lasts a lifetime, spend more than a tenner on it. <laughs> and find someone that can do tattoos, because it is dreadful. Um, and I convinced myself that Norwich was really, really lucky to have me. Um, so I started my, my nurse training, and I'm going to tell you all the things I really cringe at now, looking back, that I did. Um, I was really pleased with myself for being a, a student nurse, so much so that I dropped it into conversation, even when it was completely irrelevant. I didn't change out of my uniform when I went shopping. <laughs> um, and uh, me and my friends were really proud of our student nurse ID that could get us in to the 999 emergency services night at Chicago's on Prince of Wales Road. <laughs> All of us convinced that we were definitely going to pull a firefighter, yet when you get in there you realise it is full of drunk, lecherous, 40-something divorcees who are just hoping to grope a nurse. So <laughs> I was a bit, um, a bit disappointed. So yes, the 20-year-old me was um, a bit of an idiot, but there's quite a lot sort of, of status and how you identify yourself. Um, and how you, you know, how you think about yourself as a nurse. And certainly at that time, smugness was definitely a part of it. But thank you, thanks to the very good supervisors that I had, um, my friends on the course, and the um, people who were using services who kindly agreed to kind of let me practice on them. That kind of inner twat was knocked out of me, hopefully, fairly quickly. So I qualified as a nurse. I worked in a secure unit for five years. And then I um, took a job working in the community with young people. So mental health nursing really is one of the best jobs that you can have because just of the huge range of things that happen to you, I can't think of many other jobs where you can work alongside somebody when they're at their most distressed and um, the most kind of extreme self-injury and see them through into recovering and training as a social worker. Where you can have a 92-year-old man ask you to sit on his face um, that happened. Um, where, I didn't even know they knew about that stuff. <laughs> Such a shock. Um, where you can find somebody dead from a heroin overdose. Where you can take 11 young people across the world to Canada to an um, international conference to talk about their experience. Or where you can finally have someone let you into their home where when you've been knocking on their door week after week and they've told you to fuck off. So they're all the amazing things about the job. And people would quite often say, oh, it must be a really hard job. And actually, it, it isn't, because if you work in a really great team and you've got good support, you can deal with the most extremes of human behaviour and be okay yourself when you've got that in place. What I wasn't prepared for was... Um, the, the, the difficulty coming from organisations, or you know, two things that I thought had great values, you know, the NHS and trade unions. So in 2006, I accidentally became a trade union rep. I'd been on maternity leave, come back from maternity leave while we were off. Our paying conditions had changed over, and I thought my job had been unfairly graded. So I thought, right. The deadline's passed, but it's my first day back, so surely they'll extend the deadline. So I phoned up my trade union rep, who is a woman who um, had a reputation for hating registered nurses and being a bit too cosy to management. So she said to me, 
Um, it wouldn't have taken you two minutes while you were on maternity leave to write an email. I'm not representing you. You're out of time. You're not getting any special treatment. So I thought, right, I'm going to train as a trade union rep to make sure you never, ever represent me again. <laughs> so that's what I did. Accidentally, um, train, uh, accidentally became a trade union rep. Through that, I was elected as our media and communications spokesperson. Um, the cuts were really starting to bite from 2011 onwards, and I was getting increasingly outspoken. So the only two people at the whole organisation that were exempted from the very strict you-must-never-talk-to-the-media rules was me and my friend Reese, who was the Unite rep. So we were doing that quite often on behalf of our trade unions, not realising how much of a target that it would make us. So kind of things are quite insidious and you don't necessarily realise that you're being bullied or harassed or undermined until you can take a step back for it. But I think the first time I knew this might be a bit of an issue is what I call the corridor moment. And at Helsden Hospital, next to the canteen, there's this really, really, really long corridor. Um, I was at one end. Somebody very, very senior, who was the most senior person in HR, knows how to deal with people, was at the other end of the corridor. <laughs> and I'm always really, really polite and respectful um, to anyone I work with, whether I agree with their views or not. So I just thought, okay, clearly neither of us are going to say what we think, so I'll just be polite and say, good morning. And she stopped, folded her arms, tutted, looked me up and down, threw her head in the air, and stomped off past me down the corridor. And I looked around, and there was nobody else there, so there was no witnesses. Um, I would start to get um, phone calls from senior people or PAs asking if I could come in for a one-to-one -one meeting and people wouldn't tell me what the purpose of the meeting was or who was going to be there so I'd follow it straight up with an email following our conversation we've just had and then get stonewalled like it didn't happen and then um, another senior person who was an ally and one of the few that wasn't horrible said maybe you should try and um, have a look at some of the emails that are being circulated about you. Data Protection Act is your friend, subject access request. Well, kind of your friend. So I thought, okay, well, I'll put in a subject access request. And they said, can you come and pick them up? And I said, no, I don't really want to go there. Can you put them in the post to me? And they said, no, because there's two um, A4 box files. I was like, ah, okay. <laughs> some of them were repetitive, so I might be at some of them, you know, the same email that had been from different people, from senior people. So... I thought, okay, maybe this is uh, not going great. So um, I know we're not meant to have notes, but I, I want to get the wording right, so I'll just give you a couple of the snippets. So um, my particular favourite, the context for this was that I'd done an interview with the BBC Sunday Politics show about the impact of mental health cuts, and um, an MP who was a minister at the time had uh, emailed the BBC very late at night to make a complaint about this, of bias, um, not from any of their parliamentary stuff, from a personal Gmail account, probably to try and make sure people like me couldn't get it through subject access. Um, so this is the email. I am concerned about the role of, insert the name of um, influential male, and the fact that it is his partner that seems to be interviewed and who deliberately and cynically, in my view, politicises it, like there's anything political about mental health cuts. I appreciate she has a position in her own right, which was very <laughs> generous. So there's so many things wrong with this. One thing the person named in the email is not, never has been my partner. But even if they were, 
even if they were, why would the only explanation be for what the words coming out of my mouth that I was acting as a mouthpiece for my mythical partner rather than I'm an autonomous trade unionist speaking on behalf of members? Other delights were an email from the PA of the chief executive. Oh, is he her partner then? No, and this is, this is all very senior people. No, you've got the wrong end of the stick. See previous email, brackets, now deleted, loads of exclamation marks. <laughs> um, and the other e um, emails, um, there was other emails that were circulated which um, included allegations which if they were true would have amounted to gross misconduct but they were never put to me and I never had the chance to um, respond to them. But that, so I was never put through a process but they were used as a justification to withhold information that I actually needed quite essentially to do my paid job. So kind of all those things happened and I thought maybe I'm not winning. Um, so in that realisation, I think when you can't change or challenge a structure that's around you, all you can do is change your response and your relationship to it. So I submitted my resignation, had the best night's sleep I'd had for years, um, the kind of waking up in the um, early hours just whew, vanished, just like that. Um, so that was April 2016 that I resigned, um, and I... Um, took myself off the nursing register last month. And so kind of looking back to that really cringing young um, student nurse in my uniform in Asda, didn't know about ethical shopping then either, <laughs> um, that, that kind of thinking that what, what have I learned from that? Well, I, at that time, I didn't know that there were lots of different ways that you can um, perhaps make a difference or try and help people, that you have a choice, that giving something up absolutely isn't a failure and when you can't work within the structures that are there I think Molly gave me some really good advice I think she said if you know when, th when you're being tipped over the edge you can either drown or just get out of the fucking river so um <laughs> I got out of the river and I think there's you know there are a lot of fuckers out there that can make things really difficult for you but you have to find a way of trying to do things that means that those people can't ruin what you're trying to do so kind of my story is, I'm no, the time is now that I'm no longer a nurse, and actually that's all right. Thank you. True Stories Live is a story show and story finding project brought to you by LJ Hope Productions, Norwich Arts Centre and me, Molly Naylor. For more information about all of the work that we do, head to our website, truestorieslive.co.uk. We're super grateful to be supported by Arts Council England, Norfolk County Council and Writers Centre Norwich. <laughs> <laughs>